Welcome to Fiery Discourse, your podcast and media featuring dragonesses, female dinosaurs, and other similar swords and scalies. I'm your host, Ludmillanon, and with me are my co-hosts, Angron, Lucky Evie, Math Machine, and Jordan. Today is our 35th episode, and we're discussing 1956's The Sword and the Dragon, aka Ilya Mordomets, so let's get things started. So, Ilya Mordomets is basically a Slavic folk hero that got adapted into a big fantasy movie in the USSR that was released in uh, 1956. It's all strong, man, so you'll know it's Russian. Like, no joke, everybody there is big for the most part. Yeah, heavy weapons guy is not an exaggeration if you uh, basically take it from this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but... But yeah, the movie was later released in the West as The Sword and the Dragon, and that's the version we're going to be talking about in this episode. If we refer to the characters by different names or no names at all, that's the ones that they had in this version. Uh, the dub basically cut out uh, 10 minutes worth of footage, so it's a little bit disjointed, but thankfully the story is intact. And the titular dragon is actually a dragoness, and she doesn't appear until the last 10 minutes of the movie, but it's worth the wait. So, uh, let's start uh, talking about the movie itself, and we're going to have a lot to say about uh, her when we get to her. So, yep, here we go. The opening title sequence of this movie, uh, we're starting off right with this. It's not the original version, it's apparently a recreation of it, and all cuts and versions that I've seen of this movie online have these opening credits in it. And since this was a movie uh, made in the Soviet Union in the 1950s and later exported to the West... Yeah, it's very interesting how this dubbed version, it goes so far to try to, invo- to try to avoid that this movie takes place in Russia. It starts with, like, the opening narration that talks about, oh, a faraway land in, in, you know, in the east and that. And it's like, it's obviously uh-huh. Russia, but they can't say it because of Cold War paranoia. And yeah, the narration appears at various points of the story and isn't too intrusive, thankfully. I've seen uh, foreign movies where they put a lot of narration in it where it's not really needed, and this was uh, not such a bad version of this. Uh, Of course, this movie is dubbed over, and a wide variety of the dubbed voices was done by uh, Paul Fries, a legendary voice actor best known for all of his work in Disney. He did work on tracks such as The Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean. He was uh, Ludwig von Drake in the uh, Walt Disney's television show. He also, ironically enough, played Boris in Rocky and Bullwinkle. So he played basically like a parody Russian in that, and now here he is dubbing over a Russian movie. Uh Uh-huh. Nice. Yes, yeah. but yeah, the opening basically showcases uh, medieval Russia being sieged by the uh, Tugars or Mongols, led by uh, the evil warlord Kalin. And one thing I will say about this movie that is legitimately impressive is the sheer amount of spectacle involved in it. There are literally thousands of men riding on horseback in this opening sequence, and like mm. some of the later effects, they're simple, but. When you consider for the time period, and especially the fact that, for the most part, uh, movies in the USSR, a lot of it was like Soviet realism, you know, socialist realism, rather. This must have been like a breath of fresh air when this came out. And apparently, uh, this is still a very popular fantasy film in the uh, in Eastern Europe. It's at least comparable to something like, I guess, uh, 
the best compare way to compare it to is uh not so much Wizard of Oz, but maybe stuff like uh Robin Hood with um who's the actor? I'll, I'll think about it. But anyway, yeah, uh Ilya Mortimitz himself basically is kind of like the Slavic version of King Arthur, and it cuts to basically the peaceful uh, uh rural village where he lives, and the village is then raided by the uh two guards and uh Ilya cannot help because it turns out his legs are broken and they do not work. Yeah, that's, that's one that, thing that kind of was weird because, like, yeah. I was watching this and, like, everything gets raised, everyone gets either kidnapped or killed, and, like, even his, I want to say, mom? Yeah, I, I think I it think was it, his wife, actually. It was, like, his original wife because we later see his mother. I think it was his wife, but no, you know, you're right. I mean, they kidnap, you know, his his presumed wife, and they kill her, and they don't even go into his house to try and see where he is in that, I guess because, like, the, they were so busy ransacking the village, but no, you're absolutely right with that. You know, Honestly, that's one thing. Yeah, oh, sorry, this movie is very... One thing you'll pick up fast with this movie, it's it can be very confusing sometimes, mainly yeah. because of the disjointed te- way, it, way it presents scenes. But also because, like, not a whole lot is really clear-cut with the side yeah. characters. Because, I like, think what it was, too, because this is based on medieval literature, um, like poetry and that, like, uh, you know, great epics and that, it probably, to its intended audience, to people who know these characters, like, the back of their hand, it probably makes sense. But to those not in the whole zeitgeist or, like, the Slavic mythology... You're absolutely right. It could be a little confusing and a little disjointed. And uh, that definitely happens in this next part where we get to see uh, Invincor, uh, a giant who shows up, who apparently, according to the narration, was a defender of the kingdom but found himself tired with age. He uh, tells the the uh, pilgrims of the kingdom to give his sword to someone pure of heart and then turns to stone, which it really comes out of nowhere. But I will say this. The effects on the giant himself are very impressive for the time. Like, the forced perspective in some, like, older movies, like, say, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, where they try to pass off, like, giant iguanas as being dinosaurs, it looks kind of ridiculous. But Mm. here in this movie, you really feel that he is actually in the same space as the human beings. It's not as good as, like, something like The Thief of Baghdad with the djinn and that, but it is very, very good, I feel. Like, that is a very impressive effect. But basically, the uh, pillagers then, uh, pillagers, uh, the pilgrims rather, then return to Ilya's village, where basically they tell him what has happened to the kingdom and that. Ilya is then given a potion that gives him strength and allows him to move once more. And it turns out he's also worthy to receive uh, Invincor's sword, which is a lot easier than what King Arthur had to do. He had to pull Excalibur out of the stone, and Ilya didn't have Merlin to teach him how to transform into things. He just got the potion, got the sword, and he was off on his way. Ilya, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's just, because Soviet <laughs> Russia. Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know. <laughs> but yeah, Ilya basically asked for blessing from his parents for him to save the kingdom, which it's really funny. I mean, I, I th- imagine if they said no, would he have just gone back inside and that would have been it? Uh, <laughs> He's like, no, you are screwed. I am strong. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Ilya is given a horse called uh, Chestnut Gray, which I have to imagine was its literal name in the original version, and they just completely translate it literally. It probably has a more poetic name, but it grows from a foal in, yeah, into a huge stallion almost instantly, and 
the way it does with like time skips and like you know uh, fade in fades out is a clever cinematic technique and it's funny uh the uh real version of chestnut gray you know the uh stallion version it looks like an irl version of big macintosh <laughs> kind of yeah yeah but yeah i i i thought his name was chestnut rain and not chestnut gray it very well could be. One thing about the dub, too, especially with the uh, audio, can sometimes be a little bit garbled. I don't know if it's like a bad print or whatever, but that does kind of make it hard. Uh, sometimes it's public domain, so there's like millions of copies floating around on the internet. You can probably find it very easily if you go on YouTube. And yeah, that that is uh, something I didn't realize. But yeah, uh, Ilya is then at a crossroads where he can go to the path that leads to either riches, a wife, or death. And when I first saw this scene, I thought it was the raven on the sign that was talking. I thought, like, oh, yeah, talking raven. That That's, you know, very interesting for this type of story. But it, it turns out well it's could just be, like, honestly. It very well could be. But I think it's supposed to be, like, the voices of fate or stuff like that. Ilya mm-hmm. uh, chooses the death path and goes into a decaying forest where he finds himself face-to-face with the wind demon. And wind, as much as some of this movie's wind. effects... <laughs> As much as this movie's effects, it does look pretty good, are good, and I am going to probably rave some more about some of the effects on this later on, especially for, again, for 1956 USSR. The Wind Demon himself looks really kind of silly. He's got those big puffy cheeks and, like, that weird wardrobe and, like, a, a like, bald, uh, like, weird bald, but he's got, like, hair, like, like, a sideburns on the side of his head he looks really kind of ridiculous and i don't think he was intended to be but to a modern eye he he looks kind of silly anyway Ilya quickly defeats the wind demon by throwing a rock at the branch he sits on causing the wind demon to tumble to the ground and then the movie just cuts like like you said the movie is very disjointed and it definitely cuts from like one thing to another it's a movie that's very much like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happens which I have to imagine maybe in the original Soviet cut it flowed a little bit better, but for the most part it's not too distracting at least. But yeah, the movie then cuts to a peasant being propped before the uh, prince regent for tearing the tail off a horse, and it's at this point in the movie where I definitely have to agree that the dubbing in this part is pretty bad. The mouth movements don't come close to matching the dialogue. It's not as bad as like some of the uh, you know kung fu movies from Hong Kong and that, but it, it definitely they you can tell that they did not have a budget to like actually get the script rewritten to where you could actually match the uh, mouth flaps. With the exception of Paul Freese, yeah, uh, comes off as uh, if anyone's ever seen the original Speed Racer anime dubs. Oh boy, yeah, yeah, that that's a good comparison. It is a lot like that. I. The uh, voice actors for this movie are not credited. I only found out that Paul Frees did from reading, uh, uh, basically, biographies about him and whatnot. And, yeah, yeah uh, I could definitely... Again, we don't know who the voice actors are, so we can't say if some of them were in Speed Racer or not. Because don't forget, this was a uh, 60. That movie, that show was probably being uh, dubbed at around this time. Yeah. yeah Honestly, uh, though, I kind of prefer the... prefer those dubs over the freaking dubs that we got that over this dub personally i can see it i can see it but again uh yeah i definitely can understand why because especially in scenes like this you can tell that again they didn't have as much of a budget to uh get a better script or better quality of voice actors with the exception of paul freeze who was always excellent in everything he did 
But yeah, basically the peasant is ordered to uh, ride the horse because he tore the tail off a mare. He's basically ordered to ride the horse in the woods until her tail comes back. And then the regent orders that a great feast to be held, which happens for no reason in the story. It's like all of a sudden he punishes the guy, then he stands up and he's like, we shall have a great feast in the halls. It's like, but why? Why does, why does it deserve that? You know? And then, yeah, but why, man? Exactly, exactly. But yeah, a new character to the movie, uh, Alexei, he asks his life, his love, uh, Felicia, to accompany him to the feast. And again, there are some inexplicable moments of the movie. Like uh, after Alexei asks uh, Felicia about the feast, a woman randomly shows up to cackle about their relationship before falling off a large rock. And again, it's something that I feel like in the original Soviet version, Maybe they put more time into who this character was, but in this particular cut, it comes completely out of nowhere, and it makes no sense whatsoever. But again, be pretty much makes no sense to begin with. Yeah, that that's true. Although I have to admit, I have to imagine in the original Soviet version, it was a little bit more coherent. But yeah, again, the part with the feast is another impressive one, just for the sheer, again, spectacle of this. You gotta figure, a lot of Soviet uh, cinema was not, like, this elaborate. You had some stuff like uh, Jack Frost and uh, Sadko, a.k.a. Magical Voyage of Sinbad, but for the most part, they did not do movies like this, and it is impressive, like, the amount of extras and the, the sets are beautiful on that. We, uh, get to see a musical number, which I did not really pay attention to, because it is... Uh, not that good, unfortunately. Uh, this movie does have a couple of musical numbers that just pop in out of nowhere, and none of them are very memorable. I don't remember the lyrics. I, the tune is not really that much either. All I remember, it, from, all I remember from this little uh, musical moment is uh, when, uh, like the, is like when the female character ultimately like is in is like singing and then like there are some animals like some of their animatronics oh, that happens later on that happens later on that's actually oh, uh but... it's a different character actually but no uh, this is about uh with the feast and that Ilya then uh shows up he demands to speak to the prince uh alexei uh, brushes him off leading to Ilya insult him by saying you duel with milkmaids behind the barn which burn right there Anyway, uh, one man claims that he had, yeah, he had slayed the wind demon, but Ilya proves him wrong by, uh, by bringing along the wind demon to basically prove how strong he is and how he wants to serve, uh, the prince region that. Now, the romance between Alexei and Felicia is pretty boring in all honesty, and, uh, they don't really do much with it. I mean, this is probably the last scene with them together as a couple. It's like they were building up to more of them, but then they don't do anything. The uh, same woman who laughed at them and then fell off the rock appears again, and she faints when Alexei and Felicia embraces each other. And again, I feel like this had to be some kind of a subplot in the original Soviet version that they completely snipped out in this, but they left in, like, pieces of it. So it's up to, like, the audience when you watch this to say, where does this come from? Where does it come from? Where does it go? Pretty much, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, uh, what happens then, uh, Ilya then uh, forces the wind demon to prove his power, which it does by blowing uh, wind and knocking people back, which those stunts look incredibly dangerous, some of them. Like guys falling off buildings and that, like these stuntmen. And even though the footage sped up, it does make it look a little comical in that. 
those stunts really were kind of impressive. Like the people falling backwards. Like mm. so one guy I think did like a backflip off like the off like the uh, castle thing in that, and it is impressive. I'm not gonna lie. But then uh, Ilya is, is uh, given a ring and uh, as well as a magical armor, and he makes friends with Alexei, which I love. Just happens completely out of nowhere. Like I, I, I think Ma- I think My Little Pony friendship is magic built up to friendship more than this. What happens is that Alexei holds his hands out and Ilya immediately says, we shall be good friends, you and I. It's, it's like that simple. It's like they hated each other one minute ago and now they're best of friends. And then uh, we get to another... Wait, a, out of nowhere. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a gigantic man being carried on a platform appears and he is uh, Kaline's envoy. Now, apparently, this is a character also from Slavic mythology. For some, uh, uh, he apparently was like the personification of greed, which does make sense. And again, the effect of this guy being like a giant, like notably like this guy supposed to be, I think, like 14 feet tall. He does look noticeably uh, larger compared to the uh, other characters and the way they scaled him up is another good technique. Anyway, uh, the envoy basically demands compensation, but... Ilya uh, refuses, and the envoy tosses a sword, and then Ilya throws his sword at the envoy's stomach, which just kills him instantly. And it's like, oh, okay, that that was quick. It's like you think that, oh, there's going to be like this epic sword fight between Ilya and this giant man, like a David and Goliath kind of thing, but nope, he's dead instantly. And this causes the other uh, two guards to flee in shock, and Ilya is then rewarded with the prince's cloak, which... He gets a lot of rewards, basically. He brings the Wind Demon, and he gets the magical ring, He uh, and he gets uh, the magic suit of armor. He uh, kills the Envoy, and then he gets the Prince's cloak. It's like he like he's only been there maybe like half an hour, and he's already gotten such huge positions in the kingdom already. Yeah, when I looked up that this was based on a bunch of epic poems, it felt like they were speedrunning the first several to get to the main one, the- the movie was focused on yeah i definitely can see that too and again it's interesting with the mythology in that if you don't know about any of these uh, mythological creatures like i did when i first saw this movie you, you see like the giant guy on the platform and you're like what the hell is that guy's deal but yeah it turns out that one of the men of uh, the prince's court is a double agent for colleen if he hmm. does have a name it was never said in the movie so uh, from now on, to keep things brief, we are just going to call him uh, Soviet Jafar, because that yeah. basically is his role. He he really is. He's like uh, he's the royal advisor, and he's a double agent to the villain. But yeah, Ilya then laments about his wife uh, having been killed by the uh, two Tulgars, and he begs for a task on the prince. And then we get to see uh, Ilya ride through the countryside, which really has some beautiful cinematography. That's one thing that I, I don't think you can uh, take away from this movie. This movie looks pretty. I mean, like the shots of him like riding along with the shadows and the sun setting in the background, that is legitimately really, really good cinema right there. It's framed beautifully. The way that, you know, uh, again, the shots of basically the landscapes are really, really well done. We then see uh, Ilya uh, stumbling across a uh, Tolgar camp, and he saves a woman, uh, Philia from being their captive and Philia then basically becomes uh, Ilya Moramets's wife and we get to see uh, the prince basically berating the other nobles over their cowardice 
And then we get to, and uh, Angron, you mentioned this earlier, one of the mm-hmm. more, one of the most inexplicable parts of a pretty inexplicable movie already. Philia sings while animals basically make her a magic tablecloth. It's uh, like, did, did this all of a sudden become Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs for doing Whistle While You Work all of a sudden? It just it, comes out of nowhere. It's like, it, at one point, it's the it's the prince berating his nobles for basically being cowards and none of them being brave like Ilya Motomets, and then it just cuts this musical number. Yeah, it also reminds me of freaking uh, Wizard of Oz, and it also reminds me of that one movie we saw where it's like, it was based off an H.G. Wells book called Food of the Gods, but... Oh, yeah, 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 that one, that one. Yeah, The Village of the Giants, yeah. I can kind of see it with how, like, the musical number just comes out of nowhere. It is, like... Yeah. Like, it, like they, but, but at least with Wizard of Oz, there was, like, a build-up to it. Here, it just cuts to it, like, like with no prompting whatsoever. And again, this isn't a bad movie, far from it, but oh, it yeah. definitely is a very strange movie shall we say it probably is one of the uh more obscure and one of the strangest movies that we are covering on this podcast so it turns out that i I do at least appreciate that they kept the song in the original russian rather than english yeah i give them credit for that too i give them a lot of credit especially because i think uh, later on we do get one of the songs that is i believe dubbed um my memory might be uh uh, I might be remembering this wrong here, but I think later on we get a song that is dubbed, and it's kind of a shame that, you know, and I, again, you gotta give him credit for actually leaving it in the original language. But yeah, uh, Ilya then is revealed he's leaving home once more to fight against the uh, Tolgars, and I guess it's like every other day he's like leaving the house to fight them. It's like, it's like does the guy even want to be home? But yeah, uh, it turns out Philia is pregnant, and Ilya tells her to bear him a son, which I guess he's speedrunning being uh, Henry VIII right there. But yeah, Philia mm. is then sent on a boat with uh, the prince's men for her own safety, and we then get another musical number, and unlike the other one, the uh, magic tablecloth-making uh, sequence... This one doesn't really leave an impression on me. Like, I watched it, and I cannot remember a single thing about this song that happens in, uh, in that sequence. Mm. But it turns out uh, the Tolgars then capture her yet again, and uh, uh, they capture her and also the other merchants, and the uh, mm. Prince Regent gets word of this. Soviet Jafar then tells, uh, then tells the Prince that Ilya should be banished, and the Prince also then agrees... And Ilya Mortimitz is denied from the kingdom, and Ilya does not take this well. He basically starts yeah. screaming that he will kill all traitors. He throws his magical cloak to the ground in that. He's then uh, brought to court, where Soviet Jafar tries to uh, shoo him away in that. And then Ilya is sent, ordered to be sent to the dungeon, but fights them off. So I guess now, aside from being, you know, the Soviet King Arthur, we in this fight sequence, he is now the Soviet Bud Spencer. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, then we get also probably one of the other really just complete what the hell moments of this movie. Uh, Soviet Jafar tosses a message in the ball to send to the Tolgars, but the peasant, the one with the uh, mare's tail earlier on in the movie, finds it. Soviet Jafar panics at this, but he falls in a bear trap and he loses pants in a <laughs> bit of a goofy comedy sequence and he runs away. Then the peasant takes out all the goods from within the bottle. He puts in the Soviet Jafar's pair of pants and he tosses it into the sea. 
Then it cuts to the Tulgars who get the message in the bottle and they think the pair of pants are a sign that they can invade. What the hell was with this sequence? It makes no sense. It it is completely pointless. You could have just had Soviet Tafar tossing the bottle and then getting the message to invade. I mean, uh, maybe it was padding. Maybe it was part of like some comical poem from like a you know a Russian literature or something. But it just man, I did not understand this part. I had to actually rewind it and watch it a couple of times just to figure out: Do they really do that? Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things that something was lost in translation definitely, somewhere. Definitely, yeah. It definitely feels like, apparently, I, I, I'm just going to my Wikipedia here, so, you know, I trust you with a grain of salt. Roger Corman had something to do with the version of this movie, which is very interesting considering that uh, Roger Corman famously was a B-movie maker. He made some genuine classics like Death Race 2000, uh, the original The Little Shop of Horrors, and... Uh, some really, really good ones as well, but he also made a lot of not-so-good movies, and I feel like this was something that was done cheap to put in, like, a matinees and whatnot. I feel mm. like this was something that they basically just tried to stitch together really, really quickly in that. But yeah, and it turns to, uh, A little bit to uh, emphasize just how weird and jarring some of these cuts are, uh, right after that boat battle scene, uh, it instantly transitions to, I guess, several months later because it's winter now, and it is spring. There is Christmas music playing, and it looks like a actual Christmas scene from a different kind of movie. And I was like, "Did did we get did we transition to a new movie here? What's going on?" Yeah, I, I definitely feels like that might be padding. It might have been like, uh, "Oh, we need some kind of a transition footage. Uh, we got this in the archives. Okay, stitch it in." It really, really does not make sense in that. But then when we actually get to the uh, story, it turns out that uh, Philia is there. She uh, gave birth to a son, and she's the captive of the uh, Tolgars. Colleen forces Ilya's son to basically become a Tolgar warrior with the uh, rest of them. Alexei then arrives in the kingdom and is made their prisoner. And we then see the uh, Tolgars march on the kingdom. Uh, and sadly, we do not get to hear Sauron say, March to Helm's Deep. That's oh, the uh, second time I've made that joke on this podcast, by the way, and there probably will be many more. Thank you very much. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the amount of extras, again, I, I know I sound like a broken record here, but it really is just to emphasize the amount of people that they got to be in this movie. The uh, English language poster uh, says that there was a cast of thousands. They are not lying. There are at least hundreds of men playing these uh, tol- playing these uh, Tolgars marching on uh, the kingdom and that. What go happened, big or go home, am I right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, probably because, again, they had an infinite budget for this, being that all movies in the Soviet Union were totally government-funded. I guess they could do, like, whatever the hell they wanted with it. But, yeah. Basically, the Tolgars want 700 carts uh, of gold within three days, which, okay, 700 is a very arbitrary number. Why not 1,000 at that point? But, yeah. The prince then demands that Soviet Jafar brings him to the dungeon to free Ilya. And it turns out that Ilya was not given food, and it's presumed that he starved to death, but he did not. He has lived off the food made from the magical tablecloth that uh, Philia was uh, sewing for him with her animal friends in the previous scene. Which, I gotta admit, that I kind of do like that. They actually did a setup and a payoff. Though, again, it feels kind of arbitrary because with this magical tablecloth, you you know, I, I expected it to be used for something like, like say, like Harry Potter's invisibility cloak and that. 
I did not expect it to be used to basically make food for sustenance in that. Uh, I guess, again, it's something from uh, Russian literature, but again, not to repeat myself, but if you're not familiar with the source material, it comes really out of nowhere. And the last we see of Soviet Jafar is when the prince orders him to be boiled alive, which, okay, yeah, that's dark. We then get to see, and the movie cuts to a battlefield littered with dead. Like, again, there are a lot of casualties in this body. It turns out, according to the narrator, who finally returns after all this time, that the kingdom drove off the uh, Tulgars. And what's funny is that the narrator, it basically is just saying that, oh, the brave warriors drove off the, the Tulgars of the other kingdom. And it's like... But yeah, but look how many people are dead on the battlefield. They, they obviously had a huge loss. You don't want to mention that, Mr. Narrator? Mm. Yeah. And it turns out Alexei is now on the battlefield for some reason. I guess he escaped the uh, clutches of the Tolgars off screen. And he's disillusioned with battle and war and that. He then uh, is returned to the kingdom where he finds out that Ilya lives. And this part, I gotta admit, this part coming up is a really clever bit, and this part reminds me of something that Tolkien would have done, which I know Tolkien was a fan of this kind of literature, and I I wouldn't surprise me if he was inspired by this. Uh, Ilya then uh, goes to to the Tolgars with the treasures, but he tricks them by intentionally losing it along the way in, like, old carts and broken down, uh, cut up sacks and whatnot. And then, uh, basically, uh, Kaline orders all of his men to go into the wilderness to find the treasure. But then he tricks Kaleen, Ilya rather, Ilya Motomitsa then tricks Kaleen into thinking that the, into, uh, thinking that the gold was lost. But when, uh, Kaleen's men then return and claim they found nothing, Ilya basically showcases that they've all been hiding the gold for themselves. Which, yeah. also in this sequence, there is an exotic dance routine, which is like something, again, out of the Thief of Baghdad, you know, the 1940 classic Thief of Baghdad. Also reminds me of that one scene from freaking, also reminds me of that scene from freaking, again, that thing based off the H.G. Wells novel. Yeah, I, yeah, I can definitely again. see that. I can definitely see why uh, that was taken from it as well. But yeah, I'm short either. This went on for like a full two minutes. Oh no, no, no! That this was this was padding, but at least it was padding that made sense. It wasn't like they just huh. took footage from like some other movie and spliced it in, like what you said with that uh that Christmas sequence earlier. But yeah, Colleen then flies in a rage and he starts murdering his own men. Which okay, that that I think is historically accurate. A lot of those uh, Mongol leaders and that would Mongols. do that if they were betrayed. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, like, uh, I was watching. I was watching. Every time they were on screen, I, all I could think of was uh, the Mongols and that one scene that a YouTuber known as John Green uh, uses. It's uh, basically uh, an image of the Mongols. It's basically erasing an entire town. It's just, uh, it's historically accurate, but man, is it a little brutal sometimes. I could definitely see uh. that. I definitely. Yeah, I definitely, definitely can see that. But yeah, uh, what happens is then Colleen then demands that Ilya Motomitz shows up and he retreats. Ilya then rips off his peasant clothing and reveals his true identity. Of course, Colleen is basically like, psych, and he attacks the kingdom anyway. We then get to see Ilya flee from them, and he finds his son, who of course never knew his father, and he is a uh, Tolgar warrior. He basically duels with his son for a while before he looks into Ilya's magic ring and he finds out his true identity, which, which, okay, number one, nice that you remember the magic ring after all this time. 
and you know two it's like he immediately like gives up his uh his tolgar ways it's like he was raised by them he was ordered to be like a tolgar warrior it's like you're my real daddy i'm on your side now was kind of forced into that let's be i know fair. i know he was yeah yeah you're right you're right i i guess i can see it your way yeah he was kind of nice but yeah uh the battle scenes too are also kind of impressive again with how many people there are it reminds me a lot of the uh el cid movie from the uh from the 60s here and with, with just how the spectacle of it like all these uh swordsmen and don't forget this was pre-cgi so all of these uh men fighting each other are real which is really, really impressive, especially uh, with how they do in that. Yeah. And then uh, the kingdom uses, excuse me, the kingdom uses uh, gigantic arrows to attack the uh, Tolgars, which Colleen is sitting on a throne made out of uh, human men, which is yeah. interesting. Uh, it might be, again, uh, not sure how accurate it is, but it definitely makes for an interesting visual. We then finally get to see Colleen decides to release the dragon. Now, the dragon is actually a dragoness. She's called uh, Zmeya Gornish. Uh, forgive me for that uh, mispronunciation. She's from Slavic mythology. They actually call her in a single line. They try to call her that, but they call her Zuma instead. Which, okay, a bit of a mispronunciation there. But yeah, Zmeya is basically a three-headed dragoness. And one thing to note, even though that she's a three-headed dragoness, she is not supposed to be a hydra. Uh, mm. There actually is a difference between like a, a Gornish and a Hydra, basically. But I will admit, Zmea herself is a really good effect. Like in the sky, it appears to be like in a gigantic marionette with like these enormous glowing eyes and the close-up on her flailing around. It definitely is a puppet, but it's a very well-made one. I have seen a lot worse from a lot bigger budgeted movies than this, especially uh, even for the time period. She is uh, probably the best effect of the movie, or at least one of them. So yeah, Zmeya then uh, sets fire to the kingdom, trying to uh, destroy it, mm. but she's then struck by an arrow, which, coming back to the Tolkien inspiration for a minute, this is that's kind of similar to Smaug's death. I have to wonder if in some way he was inspired by these uh, epic Russian poetry for uh, the fate of Smaug, basically, with what happens with uh, Zmeya Gornish in this movie. But basically, uh, it turns out that even though Zmea can no longer fly, she is still alive and she breeds fire, destroys all the kingdom's ships. And then we get to see Ilya uh, approach uh, Zmea and we get to see how huge the uh, prop is for her. This is a gigantic prop. This is at least eight, nine feet tall, this thing. It looks it looks really good. I'm not going to lie. I, I give her credit as due. Zmea Gornish in this movie, it's not like, you know, it's not probably the best effect, but it's far from the worst. It is the best effect of the movie by far. And from the time period for 56, I feel like this, if you weren't going to do like Harryhausen stop motion, this is probably the best way you could have predict, you could have, uh, you could have depicted a dragon or a dragoness in this case mm. on screen. The little details. Yeah, are... uh, there's a, yeah. there are some scaling issues with it. Uh, no pun intended, because uh, sometimes uh, there was uh, near the end of it, there was a person that got on her back, and it was an entire set made for her back. Uh, yeah, just that. But yeah, for this being early fifties, for it being pure practical, 
it is astounding how yep. good this looks and yep. how just awe-inspiring it is to see it. Yeah, yeah. And I really, really hope that they didn't just destroy the prop as soon as the movie was made. I hope, like, in, like, the Moss film archives and that, that, that they have this giant, like, thing. Even if they have, like, just the puppet version would be cool to see. Mm. You know, because this well, really is such... Uh, is I... I'm still convinced to this day that what they did is uh, they kept it around as a, uh, a flamethrower tank that they used in the Soviet Army. Huh. I can very Maybe. well see that. That that would be badass. I mean, imagine, you know, you're fighting in a war and all of a sudden a giant three-headed dragon comes up. That, that You'd win. you win right away if they had that. Oh, it, boy. <laughs> but it turns out that Zmeya's fire is so hot that those struck by her flame have to be immediately be doused by water, which, again, probably was from the Russian literature, and it does look a little bit silly how they're giving, like, these big epic speeches, and then someone literally just tosses a bucket of water on them. Yeah. Off, like, you can see, like, the hands off screen just throwing it on them. Oh, God. Uh, it was really funny. Like, I, I, I just imagined him, like, walked up, Pour water! I am, and and he like gets splashed over like not me you fools the dragon oh oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh yeah that that is great <laughs> I can see that but yeah Ilya and his son basically kill uh, Zmeya by chopping off all her heads which again proves that she's not a hydra because she doesn't grow them back she just yeah. instantly dies. They uh, capture Colleen, who begs her forgiveness, and he's taken to the uh, prince, uh, presumably to be executed, probably in a very horrific way, which they thankfully do not get into. Ilya then decides to live in, to let his son live in the palace while he goes off on many adventures, which is done by reused footage earlier, but it's really good reused footage, so I gotta give him credit, you know, of him riding off to the sunset once again. Uh, this movie, as I said earlier, it's considered to be a classic fantasy movie in Eastern Europe, and I could see why. For a country like, for example, like the USSR, that did not really get these kind of movies, this must have seemed absolutely phenomenal. Like, imagine for an instance, you've never seen stuff like, uh, Wizard of Oz, you've never seen stuff like, uh, you've never seen stuff like, the you know, Robin Hood, you've never seen stuff like, uh, any of the Disney animated movies in that. Yeah. Or any of those big spectacle movies. This must have seemed absolutely mind-blowing to the Soviet audience back then. Especially mm. considering, you know, what this is made in 1956. This must have completely blown them away. And there was no known indication of how well this movie did in the West. As said earlier, it was released under the alternate title The Sword and the Dragon, at least in the United States. And it fell into the public domain a long time ago. And you, again, you could find it very easily if you look on YouTube. And as I said earlier, for me with this movie, I enjoy it really for the sheer spectacle of it all. It's not a perfect movie. Don't get me wrong. It has a lot of pacing issues. It has a lot of like a uh, disjointed nature of it. But just as something to just watch and look at the effects and the beautiful cinematography of it all. I have to recommend this movie. This movie is definitely a really, really interesting one to watch. Yeah. And it, it uh, definitely I is not... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I enjoyed it because... Uh, quite. I, I enjoyed it because it has, like, the campiness to it. Like, again, yeah, the pacing scattered, and, like, honestly, I went in, like, expecting it to be basically just a dub. And I was not disappointed in that regard. It's a dub. It's got pretty impressive points, and 
Other than a few confusing spots here and there, it's all right. Yeah, if we're judging the movie based on today, it's terrible. But you you don't do that. You have to judge it based on when it came out. And even for as horrible as the dub is, just the spectacle of everything alone makes this a, an amazing movie. Definitely, definitely. A hundred, a hundred percent with that. Which now brings us uh, to the question of the episode, which is, uh, what is your favorite uh, foreign movie? And I'm going to say this right now, no anime. Anime is off the table in this. What is your favorite oh, foreign, let's say foreign live action movie, for instance. For mine, that's a really tough one because there are a lot, a lot of good ones, especially from the uh, from Britain, from the 60s and that. You have great ones like uh, Prime of Miss Jean Brody. That's a classic. You have... Uh, some really, really good ones. But for me, my favorite foreign movie of all time is probably a tie, and they're all French, between the uh, comedies of Pierre Richard, which is uh, The Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe, The Return of the Tall Blonde Man, and The uh, Toy, which infamously became the Richard Pryor movie, but the original French version is an actually good movie. And also, my other uh, one for my favorite foreign film is going to be The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is a really beautiful movie. It's like a musical where all the dialogue is done in song, and it really is just one of those movies that if you see it once, you are never, ever going to forget. And getting back to the uh, Pierre Richard films, I feel like he has just a comedic sensibility. The closest, uh, uh, basically, uh, what... Uh, the closest comedian I can compare him to is Gene Wilder and how just effortlessly charming he is. He even looks a little like Gene Wilder, to be honest, but he really is just so effortlessly charming, and especially in stuff like the uh, the Tall Blonde Man franchise and the toy. He is fantastic. He's a phenomenal actor, and the toy in particular is actually more of a dramedy. I mean, it has a lot of funny moments, but at the end, you will cry at the end of the original toy. Uh, the the French version, not the Richard Pryor version. I want to specify that for anyone listening to this. If you want to look up uh, the movie The Toy, it is not the one with Richard Pryor. It is the one with Pierre Rashad. But yeah, those are probably my favorites because, again, I feel like they're types of movies that you don't really get anywhere else. Of course, you have other ones I could mention, like, you know, Nine and a Half by Fellini. You have, like, again, you just have so many options. But for me, for my personal enjoyment... Those are going to be the ones that are my favorite. Uh, the the uh, cinem- the uh, uh, filmography of Pierre Rashad and the uh, musical The Umbrellas of Shirbo. Uh, Angron? Okay, so... I, too, have not seen that many foreign, quote-unquote, movies. The closest I can get... The closest I can say I got is to something like... Uh, is Amelie... Uh, Serrano de Bergerac, uh, a Japanese movie, it is not an anime, that, uh, it, it, it's live action, and, uh, let's see, what else there, was there? Oh, uh, technically Pan's Labyrinth, if you count the Spanish version? Yeah, yeah, that, that counts, that counts. That, that is definitely my top ten, I, I can't believe I forgot okay. about that, but yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see, um, there's this... There's two Spanish movies that I saw in uh, high school. One of which is the uh, is this tra- is this uh, movie about a uh, Mexican so- ch- children's soccer team that uh, pretty much goes big for the most part. And the other is basically about 
it's it's a lot darker but i i i for the life of me cannot remember the name of that movie all good all good so um which one do i pick um i am going to have to say I'm gonna have to say Pan's Labyrinth because it's not only good choice, like good choice. Yeah, it's not only like a pick that I have to say, fuck it, I'll do that one. And and it, not only does it like freaking uh, meet the criteria, but uh, I like Pan's Labyrinth. It's uh, it's entertaining. It has the it, it's Guillermo del Toro. It's pretty much uh, it pretty much has the per- person who's pretty much a freaking contortionist who was also in. Uh, the Shape of Water and freaking Doug Hellboy. Jones, Doug Jones. He, yeah, he, Doug he's Jones. a great actor. Yeah, yeah. He was Hell the. Yeah. Uh, Hell yeah. He's the uh, pale man. He he's great. Uh, th- that is a great great choice right there. Pan's Labyrinth is a beautiful, heart wrenching, just, just fantastic movie all around. Del Toro in general, all his movies are worth watching. I don't think he's ever made a single bad movie, not one. Huh? Yeah, I, I highly highly have to agree with you there. Hmm. Anyways, yeah, that is that. That's gonna be my pick. Okay, uh, math. I'm the animation guy, oh, so okay. I'm going with an with an animated movie, but I'm not going anime. Okay, all good. I'm actually going France as well. Okay. Mm. Uh, so I could go with something like Triplets of Babel or Fantastic Planet, things that are more widely known like that. I'm actually gonna go obscure. Oh, go ahead. And it's this movie called. Mune Guardian of the Moon. Oh, I have not heard of that. Main 2014, it's a CG movie. It it's very fantastical, has this just really creative, unique world. The designs are, are great, all of the uh environments are beautiful. It's it's a simple story. But it just works really well, and there's several scenes that are animated in a uh, 2D style that are absolutely gorgeous. That sounds really great. The, oh my so gosh. It has it has two English dubs, uh, one Canadian, one American. Uh, watch the Canadian. Okay. Do not watch the American dub. They... Uh, celebrity and yucked it up and all that—it's ah, terrible. Ah, oh my that, gosh. that always stinks when they do that. You know, that that always stinks when dubs try to do that. You know, they always take it and they, they take something beautiful and they try to make it hip and you know edgy and that 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 stinks. I, I definitely will check out that movie. That sounds really good. Okay, okay, okay. Actually, it's, it's, if, he, okay. he just he just reminded me of something. Like, if we're talking animated movies, oh man, it. I mean, there's oh, FRO seven. But... Yeah, if we're going animated, I, yeah, I probably will have to go with. God, that that is hard. That is really hard. You got, you got to. I got to get back to you on that. I think like uh, Ernest and Celeste would be one. That's a really good one. You have, yeah, uh, one. yeah you have, um, you have um, El Cid the Legend from Spain, which is another good one. You have. Uh, Trying to think of uh, some other ones. There, there are a lot of them. Wow, wow. That 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 just became yeah. way harder for throwing in animated movies. Yeah. We'll have to... Honestly, though, I might replace Pan's Labyrinth with uh, an, an honestly an underrated one who, to this day, I do not know what their English voice act, actor lineup is, but yep. Feel a Day. Oh, yes. Yes, yeah, that is a very... 
<laughs> interesting movie. It, it's dark. It is very, very dark. Yeah. Anyone listening to this right now, uh, you got to have a stomach for it. Let's do it that way. Oh, hell yeah. It's Watership Down with Cats. Basically, based on that, that's part. the easiest it's, way to describe it. Basically, Watership Down meets, quote unquote, uh, Professor Layton, I want to say. With, uh, Kinda. I can see it. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Also, uh, go, um, on, go on ahead. I was say, uh, look, excuse me. Uh, Lucky Evie, what would you have to say? I don't think I've ever watched any foreign films. Any, like, like uh, animation ones, or? No, like, none at all. Oh, it's all good. Okay. All right, now it is time for the, uh, uh, oh, and uh, Jordan apparently um, left. Oh, I hope everything's all right with her. But oh. yeah. Um, oh, shame about that. Well, that's all right. That's right. Uh, so now we get to the uh, patent pending uh, Dragonist scale, where we rank, of course, the Dragonists. And today, of course, we're talking about Zemea Gornish. I am going to give her, just for the effect alone, I feel like she deserves maybe an eight. I'm going, I, okay, m- maybe a seven if I'm being like realistic. Maybe I will just uh, go down to seven because she's not really a character. She's more of like an obstacle, but goddamn, this looks amazing for 1956 for the Soviet Union. Just like, again, uh, as uh, Math said earlier about that scene with uh, the, uh, Ilya's son on her back and it's like an entire set of just her back I mean that they really went all out with this design with this character and for again if you look at it today from like a modern 2023 uh standard it looks completely ridiculous it it looks it it looks a little silly but if you look at it from the time for the achievement and really just for how it looks, it is fantastic. And again, I don't know a lot about the uh, original Russian stories that she comes from and how accurate it is to her or not. But yeah, I'm going to give her a, uh, if I have to be realistic, I really would like to give her an 8 out of 10. But I feel like she didn't have as much screen time to warn it. Not saying that the screen time she had was bad by any means. She is a fantastic, fantastic dragoness. But uh mm. Especially again for a practical one, which we don't get a lot of on this podcast. We are we are not going to be talking a lot about you know practical effect dragonesses, and this is a pretty good one. So yeah, seven out of ten for me. Uh, Angron. Uh, oh man, that's going to be a tough one. I am going to have to say, okay, so she's definitely a force to be reckoned with. She serves the plot pretty well. She doesn't get a lot of screen time, but honestly, for like a last-ditch effort, the frickin' Mongols could have done worse. I, sadly, am going to have to say that despite being exceptionally... Despite being uh, everything uh, Led Milanon just said... I'm sorry. At most, it's going to be a three or four, if I'm being generous. Like, again, screen time... Okay, screen time aside, I... The tech, technology and uh, uh, ultimately, like, appearance plays a huge part in my enjoyment, and it is not a bad design. It works. It's uh, pretty... His, it's pretty uh, charming in a rugged sort of way, but... Yeah, that is gonna be a uh, three or four out of ten for me. All right, no, no problem. Uh, math, what would you have to say? 
I'm actually going to agree with you on this one and go with a seven. Mm. Normally, the way that I rate them is up to a five based on design and up to a five based on character or personality to get to uh, my out of ten score. Uh, there is no character here. There is no personality. This is based solely on design and implementation of the effects. And good god damn, this was impressive. I give it a 7 just purely based on that. It, it is that outstanding to see this in, in motion. For the time period that this came from, the fact that they got this to look as good as it did and to be as just awe-inspiring as it was, I don't know what black magic they had to pull. I don't know if they had to actually bring in the Soviet army and retrofit a tank, but it is amazing to watch this in action. Definitely, definitely. I can see that. And uh, Lucky, what would you have to say? I honestly can't even wait this on design because I can't actually find a good picture of it. Okay, so... um, like I, I'm not even sure if this thing has legs. Okay, uh, on, let me just see if I can... Uh, let me see if I find a picture for you. Okay, just one second. We're just finding a picture of it for uh for uh, Evie. Just one second. Sorry about that. If you're listening on this, uh, okay. So, what would you rank it? Basically, uh, damn, there are, there are no fun. real good pictures of it. Wow. Uh, I guess like a, All right, all right. Then yeah, we'll go with five, and that uh, turned out a little different than expected. Uh, there really aren't any good pictures of her. You're right. Wow. I looked it up uh, on the thing and. A lot of it is either uh, zoomed-in shots of it or really bad uh, pictures of it, basically from or, copies or just, that were on, like, VHS 50 times. Wow, that, that is just, a shame. just the poster art. Yeah, yeah, I guess. The, the poster art really isn't that indicative, but I can kind of see... Uh, yeah, that's kind of a shame. But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening to this. If you have any questions... Or if you want to send us your impression of the Wind Demon, you can email yeah. us at fierydiscourse at outlook.com or visit us on fierydiscourse at twitter.com at twitter.com slash fierydiscourse. Next time, we'll be looking at the 1996 OVA Get Going Godzilla Land Subtraction. That's going to be a lot of fun talking about this uh, weird little uh, side underrated entry into the uh, Godzilla franchise. And until then, thank you guys so much for listening. Take care. Yep, letters. Adios. So